Welcome to Humans Are Us, Human Lives, Human Stories, a podcast about ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are the stories of people that said yes to themselves. Their experiences have helped to make them who they are in this moment. By sharing their personal stories, we hope to inspire others to live their truth. This is a podcast about growth and being one's true, authentic self. Please be advised, this podcast contains adult content and language. Welcome to episode one of Humans Are Us. Today's guest is my friend, Nevada. She was born in the U.S., worked in New York City, and moved to Canada not once, but twice. She has been in Toronto since December 2016. And 2020 has been a big year for her. She got married to her wonderful husband, Robin, and the couple moved into their first apartment together. Plus, she had a vaginoplasty. Hello, Nevada. Thanks for being here today. And congratulations on getting married and your new vagina. Thank you, girl. Thanks for having me on your show. Wish you much success on it. Oh, that's so sweet. You started your transition in your early 30s when you were living in New York. Yes, definitely a a kind of somewhat of a late bloomer in the transitioning game. Hey, any time is a good time. That is true. That is true. You're never too old to be yourself. Can you talk about the steps that were a part of that process for you? So I identified as a gay male um, for 34 years. And um, within that time, I knew it was more than just being a gay male. Um, But I also knew that as a feminine gay male, which is what I was presenting to society, I had a lot of problems as as it is, as it was. So I wasn't going to up the ante and come out as my true self unless the environment and the circumstances was conducive to do that and safe to do that. I grew up in the Southern United States in the 80s and 90s. And we know being gay and cis was a big deal. So being trans and whatever sexual orientation was an even huger deal, you know, back then. So, you know, it just wasn't going to happen for me. Um, Personally, I wasn't strong enough mentally and emotionally to transition prior to 34. But it was around 30, 31 where I was like, you know what? I keep saying being a feminine gay male is enough and it's not enough. Why is it not enough? Because it's not who I am. It's not the essence of of who I truly need to be, not want to be, but need to be. So I was contemplating it in the back of my mind, seriously, at 30 and 31. It started to move to the forward part of my mind around 32. And then by 33, I was like, okay, well, I need to transition because I'm really a woman. I've always been a woman. And now that I'm on my own, I'm living in New York City, I'm making good money, Um, I think this is the time I told my mother that, uh, I'm a transgender woman. Now I still aesthetically looked like a a male at that time, but I knew I needed to start having the conversations with my friends and family. So I started with my mom and, um, she was supportive, 
Uh, she did suggest maybe I should wait another two years and save up money and be in a better place, uh, even even an even more better place financially before I transition. But, you know, transitioning doesn't really work like that. I call it the trans switch or the non-binary switch. When your mind and soul tells you it's time to do a physical manifestation of your transition, whatever that is unique to you, it's time to do it. And it doesn't adhere to um, societal norms or socioeconomic statuses or timing. It, it When that switch is flicked on, you know, you know. I think other trans non-binary people can also agree with me that when it, they knew it was the moment to start physically transitioning, if that's what worked for them, they, they knew when that time was. And that was my time, you know, at... 33 years old, um, sitting in my office in New York City at 10 o'clock at night, you know, telling my mom that the transition physically was on its way. It's time to do it. And I can't wait two years. So I um, ended up going to a clinic in the Bronx called Callan Lord Community Health Centers and LGBT Healthcare Center. And I remember my First doctor for trans care. Her name was Dr. Sophie Narani. Shout out to her. She's fantastic. Love her. Miss her. She gave me my first hormone pills, which were testosterone blockers, blockers called spirulactone and um, estradiol or, or estratrace, depending on the pharmaceutical company. And I, I remember a few weeks later, I was back in my uh, office late at night at 10 p.m. And it's like, all right. I said, I sat on these pills for a week. I told Dr. Narani my story. I explained to my mom, this is going to happen. I think I need to build the courage to do it. You know, because once, once you make that decision, you have to let it marinate. And so even though I got the hormone pills um, a week prior, I didn't take them right away. I had to, I had to just like marinate in the moment. Finally took them a week later after I received them from Dr. Narani and then I was like, okay, well, the physical transition now begins. Time to match the outside with the inside. You know, this is a journey and it does have some pauses in it where you need to really think about maybe not what you're doing, but it sounded like, yeah, okay, I have these estrogen pills, but I just got to like take a pause. Do you think there was a sense of you saying goodbye to the person you were, the, the man you were? On the outside, do you think that perhaps you needed that time to say goodbye to everything up into that point or how your life was up into that point? Yes. For me personally, and I can only speak for myself, um, absolutely. Uh, I had lived um, and presented as a male for 33 years, going on 34 years. And so all I knew was a male quote unquote presentation. Um, and so it, it was a massive change. I knew it needed to happen, but you know, it's not just um, the physical self that does the transition. It's in your mind as well. You know, sometimes you'll have trans and non-binary people that do the mind and body transition together. Sometimes the body transition is first. Um, sometimes the, the mind is first. For me, the mind was first. I try to uh, take care of that transition first and then, you know, kind of reroute my thinking and, and reroute my presentation. And then 
I let the physical um, portion of the transition take place. So I definitely need to kind of say goodbye to what I knew because I knew it was going to be drastically different. Like it was already polarizing being a feminine, overweight, black, gay male in America, but it does not compare to being an overweight, black, trans female. They're totally two different experiences. Um, so many that that we could be here all day to get into the differences between the two. The number one being the access to patriarchy. The access to patriarchy was going to be gone or diminished, you know? And um, I think that's one thing that some binary trans women learn or realize is you were never a man ever, but because you presented as a man, you had privileges and access to patriarchy. And that is all going to change or be watered down once you do a physical transition. So I had to really sit and think about that. You know, you know, saying think before you speak, I thought before I transitioned as much as I could for myself. Laverne Cox recently just posted about her recent experience with transphobia. And I know, again, that's something you've dealt with both in the U.S. and Canada. Can you talk about um, having to leave your job in the U.S. and what negative impact that had on you? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, So to kind of pick up from the beginnings of my transition story to answer that question is took my hormone pills, finally got the courage to do that. Um, I told a few people that I was transitioning. Remember, I still aesthetically look like a male, um, but I had told them I'm taking hormone pills and the transition is coming. I told my best friend at the time the transition is coming. I told a few other uh, close friends. And of course, foolishly, I told my coworkers and... I felt comfortable telling my coworkers because at that time when I started transitioning physically, I'd worked at that company for three and a half years. So we knew everything about each other. You know, we had moments of laughter and crying. I took care of one of their dogs for weekends on ends when her and her husband went on vacation. I hugged my supervisor when her boyfriend broke up with her and left her emotionally destitute. We were thick as thieves. It wasn't just a coworker relationship. We, after three and a half years, we had a close bond or so I thought. So I had no problem. It didn't even occur to me to think twice, to tell them, hey, let me tell you about this Oprah Winfrey aha moment I had and how I'm going to transition. And I, I I hope you're happy for me and stuff like that. And I know several months before I took the hormone pills, I was, I was talking to my coworkers about it, just testing the waters. And um, they seemed fine with it. And so when I actually took the pills... I was like, this is great. They'll, they'll know that I actually took a step and it's not just talk. I told all three of my coworkers, it was a small office. So there was me and then three coworkers at the time, my supervisor and then two other coworkers and then the big boss. My big boss is, is I can't say was because he probably still is, a devout Catholic. After, you know, talking about me taking my hormones and I was so excited, you know, two weeks after taking my hormone pills, all of a sudden um, there were murmurings that I bring my personal life too much to work all of a sudden. And 
I didn't know where that was coming from. I didn't know which of the three it was coming from, but I was like, oh, you know what? I, I, whatever. You know, I just blew it off. I told one coworker in particular who was very close to my boss about my transitioning, do not tell my boss that I'm transitioning physically because he's a devout Catholic and he's not going to approve. Let's wait till HR can fly in from another state and we can have a whole conference meeting about my transition. I'm confiding in, in, I confided in y'all as my coworkers, but especially you do not go and tell my boss that I'm transitioning physically. So what happened is she went and told my boss that I was transitioning without HR being directly involved. So that's when the character assassination began. Um, Supposedly her and her mother were out at a schmoozing dinner with my boss and she blamed it on her mother. She said, I told my mother that you were transitioning and she accidentally blurted it out to our boss at the dinner table. And I was like, well, it doesn't really matter if, you know, Queen Elizabeth too blurted it out. Like, when I said, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, especially our boss. And you tell your mother and y'all go out to dinner and y'all fraternize with our boss. It's going to get back to him. And that's exactly what happened. So once he knew about it, everything in the office changed. My entire three and a half year experience at that office went down the toilet. They were isolating me. Um, a lot of them wouldn't talk to me unless it was work related. Uh, my boss started to get very standoffish towards me. And so finally I confronted my boss. And this is about a month after I was taking hormones, still aesthetically looked like my um, former self I was presenting as. And I said, listen, I know, I, uh, I was about to say her name, child. I know that Barbie told you that uh, I was transitioning or her mother did. So I'm not stupid. I know you know. I feel the energy changing around here. And what I need to know, get from you in this moment is that you're going to have my back. When I do transition, you're going to support me as I use the women's bathroom. You're going to support me if sometimes the dealers or the artists don't understand it. I need that from you as my boss, because I know you know, and I know you weren't going to approach me and talk about it, but I feel the tension and I don't want any of it anymore. So I just want to have it all on the table. And he said to me, This was around the time that my home state enacted the bathroom laws against transgender people. Yes, my home state of North Carolina was the one who started that, where it fanned out like wildfire across the globe. And the time when the attorney general in the Obama administration, I believe, Loretta Lynch, said that what North Carolina and other um, regions following suit were doing were illegal. So that, that was happening at the same time as I was transitioning. I was trying to relate to him in a moment. I was like, I have a problem with what they're doing in my home state. You know, I'm transitioning. And when I'm ready to use the women's bathroom via my transitional guidelines, I'm going to use the women's bathroom. And he said, well, I don't approve of that. And I said, oh, you don't. And he says, I don't want a man in a dress going into the bathroom where my little daughter could go. That's what he told me in my face. And so I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) I took care of his son who was five years old when he was on a conference call before for three hours. Now, I don't think on my job description, babysitter was anywhere in it. Yet, because I thought I had a close relationship with the office, I put my work aside to babysit your son that you brought to work and you didn't want to deal with. 
And your son, who's five years old, loved me. And we had a great time. And he didn't find me threatening. And now that I'm transitioning, you're sitting in my face and you're telling me I'm not comfortable with a man in a dress in the bathroom with my little girl. So all of a sudden I'm a threat. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't talking about you. I'm like, but you are talking about me because in several months that is going to be me. And you are talking about me and it is offensive what you said and I'm not going to stand for it. And then it all went downhill from there. We got into a huge HR battle and then, you know, of course, HR takes my boss's side because he had been there for 20, 30 years saying that was just an opinion. And I'm like, well, you know what? Uh, I'm sure people find anti-Black racism an opinion, too. And that didn't work out for a lot of people. It's not an opinion. It's blatant bigotry. And I'm not going to sit here and allow you to railroad me and degrade me as a Black transgender woman who's on the horizon. I'm not going to allow you to do it. And... Finally, it got so ugly between my boss and the director of HR on this issue because the company was based in the South. On top of the fact my boss at the time was a devout Catholic, it got so bad they put me on administrative leave. And then at the end of it, they terminated me for insubordination. I don't regret how I talked to them in those meetings. I don't regret that they terminated me because I don't want bigots to run my show. So... um, You know, they gave me a little severance pay, a little NDA that I had to sign, and I moved on. So around that time, Donald Trump, several months later, was also elected. With Donald Trump elected and my spastic boss manipulating the situation the way he did to oust me as a Black transgender woman, I picked up my bags and I left the United States because I had had enough. Well, I'm happy you moved to Canada for a second time. Oh, thank you, baby. (laughs) But I think it's an important story to hear. And the way you stood up for yourself and the way you were like, no, I'm not going to put up with this because this isn't okay. You know, you're allowed to go to the bathroom in a woman's bathroom because you are a woman. And... There's no discussion on that. That's just fact. Right. Yeah. I mean, my boss was okay with me identifying as a gay male, you know, because his clients like me, his employees like me. But once we crossed the threshold, no bueno. Like, I guess it was just, it was just too far for that person. It was too far for him. And, and you know, it really affected me. I cried for months. I felt a sense of betrayal because I gave this man and his employees three and a half years of my life. And you terminate me because of a transition. Because five months later, you gave me a glowing yearly eval. And all of a sudden, five months after, I'm terminated because I I was transitioning and I was open about it. And the sense of betrayal, it took a long time to get over it. And you know what? I, I do still cry about it. I am still upset about that. That never should have kicked off my transition. And, you know, it set the tone, to be honest, for the rest of my transition. You know, I wish stories like that didn't exist. But unfortunately, we don't live in um, a world of my own creation. Such a strong voice, especially being, like you said, a Black trans woman. For some days, it's super heavy. But you... You know, you're also such a beautiful, amazing, caring, kind, funny, strong woman. I know you had to go through that stuff, but I'm just happy that those experiences haven't made you 
you know, this bitter, angry, you know, I know you get angry. No, the way people treat not just you as a trans black woman, but trans people in general is deplorable in some situations. And that story you just told is just one such incident. Of many. And, you know, to have it happen to Laverne Cox, I'm so proud of her for standing tall and you know, sharing that story, you know, um, because even within Hollywood, you're not protected from transphobia. You know, um, all of us get it, regardless of where we are in our transition or how we present ourselves in our transition. All of us get it. Some of us get it more than others if we're more easily identifiable Mm -hmm. one way or another. And it was nice to have her from her platform say, you know what, it happens to me too. And it is no joke. And it is a systemic problem that needs to be tackled like yesterday. No, and I think her speaking out about it is so important. And mm-hmm. and any person speaking out about this is so important because by speaking about it, we're able to say, you know, that's not okay. And it is a systemic problem because like your story shows, you know, your boss was just like, no, I'm not okay with this. And the company backed him up. So it was a systemic problem. Yeah. It's a Southern company, their values and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, but I don't think it's just Southern companies that have that problem. That's true. It does come from not just one person's opinion. This is something that affected your livelihood and your life. You did have a good job and you, I'm sure, were amazing at it. And because you decided to live your truth, which is so brave and amazing, they took away the life that you spent 33 years creating. And that's not fair. It's not right. It's completely wrong. And I really hope that those people look back on their actions and think, holy shit, I fucked up. I was such an asshole. No, oh, won't hold my breath. But in a perfect world, I'm hoping they're, they're doing this. <laughs> one person. I'm not asking for everyone. Just, Just one. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it was the weirdest thing. I thought fondly about my old supervisor the other day, just randomly. And, you know, I have such animosity towards her and the rest of them, but I thought fondly about her the other day and I just kind of missed the good times we had, the laughs we had, the talks we had. And just, you know, but then, you know, that was just a momentary flash because then you realize that she was part of the machine that helped throw all of that away just because, like you said, I'm living my truth. And And I think that's the unfortunate tragedy behind it. You know, that you couldn't see beyond your own two eyes. You couldn't see that it's the same person. She just found herself even more. And that's all it was. Nothing else changed, you know, and and she couldn't see that and the others couldn't see that. And and I think that's what breaks my heart about it. I'm angry and angry and and sad about, about the situation and what they had done, but mostly sad because it didn't have to be that way, you know? But it happens all the time to people like myself. Just because it happens all the time doesn't mean that lessens how awful it is. Um, You know, I think because it happens all the time that 
us as a society should be even more enraged. You became a happier person by transitioning because now you are fully you and you get to fully be you. You had to, or you felt like you had to move and get away. I guess for some people that might seem rather drastic to just be like, you know what, I'm done. But I think for you, it was such a good move. And I'm sure it was insanely hard to start over, not only to start over, but in a different country. It is hard whenever you have to start over. I mean, I I, I was familiar with Canada because I lived here five years prior to when I moved here in 2016. So I had familiarity on my side that that kind of lessened the blow of the, the culture shock and just the trauma of picking up yourself up and moving, thankfully. But, you know, the United States um, has a very high death rate for um, binary trans people of color. And then, of course, um, non-binary people of color. It has a very high uh, maiming and death rate. So me, just on the beginning of my overall transition, you know, with my boss, then Donald Trump, the fact of the high danger rate that was slowly coming to the surface more and more was a huge catalyst to get my butt out of there. Um, and even now, you know, the United States has had 40 plus trans and non-binary people murdered this year. And every year uh, eclipses the year before it. And this was happening long before I transitioned and has just steadily gotten worse under the Trump administration. As inconvenient as and as polarizing as it is to pick up myself and move, um, I feel it's become a life and death situation. Um, and I'm glad I did that. And, and hopefully I can I can stay put, you know, um, because I am a visible um, trans person. I don't have cis passing privileges as much as people try to delude me into thinking I do. I don't, uh, uh, newsflash, I don't believe you and the people don't either because they tell me. But so I, I definitely want to stay safe or, or safe-ish because it, it, same shit happens here. But I think the difference between Canada and the United States is there are um, federal protections for transgender folks. In the United States, that's not the case. So... Well, I'm glad you're safer. Thank you. Because I do. Like, I, I, I sometimes worry about you every time I see. And I, I agree. Like, this year, it seems like so many women have been murdered. And, you know, for being, you know, themselves. And so I do worry. But I, I it does give me comfort as selfish as this may sound, that, you know, you're living in Canada and it is a bit safer than the States. And we're not going to talk about why that is. Trump, I don't want to go down that road. I won't. You won't. <laughs> and other people talked about him to death. And, you know, let's talk about something happier or happy-ish, I say. Um, I'm excited for you anyways. I cried with happiness when I found out that you were in Montreal getting your vaginoplasty. So those uh, listeners who might not know, I'm just going to read a little definition of what a vaginoplasty is. So we're all on the same page here. 
Plasty is a surgical procedure that results in the construction or reconstruction of a vagina. So in June, you went, you had it done. I'm sure it was a hell of a process. So can you talk about what you had to go through in order to get this surgery? Because I'm American and I don't uh, have permanent residency yet, uh, I had to be creative. Getting my gender-affirming surgery covered. In my case, I can speak uh, as a binary trans woman. There's FFS, facial feminization surgery. There is um, breast augmentation. And then, of course, there's the hip button plants. And then there is the vaginal plasty. Those are usually the four or five cornerstones of um, gender-affirming surgeries for binary trans women. It's very expensive. I don't really have my papers here in Canada yet. So how am I going to get this gender-affirming surgery done um, to help treat my gender dysphoria and becoming more aligned with who I really am? Um, It took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and patience, patience, patience. So I first uh, started out by having my caseworker at the time write a letter to GRS Montreal talking about my case and if uh, the doctor could do a pro bono, which was a shot in the dark, but you know, my, nothing to lose. What can you get? Just a no. <laughs> if you don't try, it's always going to be a no. Exactly. Of course, the answer was no. However, GRS Montreal, um, by the way, GRS Montreal is the only place in Canada to get major gender affirming uh, surgeries. They sent a letter saying, well, no, but. Um, if you write a letter to immigration, um, IFH, which is interim federal health, it is basically the um, interim health care for refugees, asylum claimants, and uh, people trying to get into the country. If you write them, maybe they can help you. That's what GRS Montreal said. So uh, me and my caseworker, we wrote to... Um, uh, Immigration Canada, and uh, they said they were interested in hearing what I had to say. So then I took it to a lawyer, and then me and my lawyer basically wrote up a proposal from the caseworker uh, original letter, and then we sent that proposal off to um, the Interim Federal Health Department, and they gave it to me. They, they gave me insurance coverage for the surgery. It took about a year and a half year, year and a half before we heard a yay or nay, but they said yes. And this, of course, was groundbreaking because to me and my support network's knowledge, there's never been um, a person who has applied for citizenship to Canada via humanitarian compassionate grounds who had discretionary interim federal health coverage for a gender-affirming surgery. That's a mouthful. So to my knowledge, I'm the first one to have that done. Um, it's discretionary. So um, it was basically at the discretion of the people looking at the proposal that me and my caseworkers and my lawyer sent. And they just, someone had a compassionate heart and said, sure. You know, and it's ironic because immigration is the one to pay for it. <laughs> but I don't have my papers yet. So there's a lot of catch-22s. So um, that's how I got funding for it. Once I had the funding, of course, you're entered into GRS Montreal's waiting list, which at the time was, I think, 
maybe it was maybe eight, nine months long. I had a few dates. I think I had a, I had a, a June date, a June 2020 date. Then I had them bump it up to April 2020 and then coronavirus happened and it got pushed back to June. <laughs> so my surgery date, once I was in the waiting queue for surgery, was bouncing all over the calendar. So basically I, I ended up having the surgery a day after my original surgery date. You know, COVID shifted things around. So in late June, finally had the surgery. That is just roller coaster of emotions. I can't even imagine from getting the the initial denial from the hospital to getting this amazing yes from immigration. And then, you know, here's a date. No, no, we're just going to, we're going to do it sooner. Oh, we lied. (laughs) Amazing to me that, you know, this is your body. You know what works for you and what is right for you. And I can't imagine that decision in the hands of other people who don't even know you. Right. Yeah, my lawyer was amazing. The proposal, um, the the dossier that she created for this surgery to happen was so detailed and so immaculate. And I'm so thankful that it landed on the right person's desk at in- immigration and they just... Um, had a lot of um, sympathy and or empathy for my case. And they granted me the monies to go ahead and, and have this um, gender affirming surgery. It, it meant a lot to me. I really appreciate it. I know everyone's experience is different because everybody's body is different. And so when it comes to this type of intense surgery, healing's different and the outcome is different. Your experience has been one of trials. Can you talk about, you know, as much as you feel comfortable about what occurred after surgery? So plot twist, my surgery did not go well. (laughs) So we went, so we went all, went through all of that and um, my body did not heal it correctly. And basically I have to have a revisional surgery next summer. Everybody heals differently who has any type of gender affirming surgery, but in this case, vaginoplasty. Sometimes your people's bodies won't heal the, the cavity properly. So let me kind of explain how vaginoplasty works. Now, I'm not a medical expert. I may get the terminologies wrong. I may get some things switched around, but um Google, right? Basically, they take uh, for a binary trans um, woman, or, you know, it could be a non-binary person with a penis. They take the penis and um, they don't um, castrate, physically castrate it like you may think. They basically rearrange your penis. (laughs) They basically cut it down the middle. Well, I'm sorry, they probably, they take off the top because the top of the penis is going to be the clitoral nerves and the clitoris and the roots. And then they slice the rest of the shaft. They take your scrotal skin off. They get rid of the testes and basically no longer need those. Right. Because they produce testosterone and, you know, you're a binary trans woman, or if you're a non-binary person who 
that just isn't the transition you want. They're useless, right? So you check out the testes. And so then you're basically working with the scrotal skin, which is, you know, wrinkly and long and pliable and like taffy sometimes. You have, you know, parts of the shaft. And then, of course, you have the tip of the penis. And that is all rearranged into to aesthetically make a labia majora and a menorah and a clitoris. And basically this is where I get confused with how they make the cavity. So they create a cavity. And I think some of the scrotal skin and some of the shaft skin is used to create like the skin of the cavity. And then they put it into the hole or something like that. If I'm messing this up, I am truly, truly, truly sorry. But um, basically, um, it's it's a penis rearranged with a cavity created. Something big with vaginoplasty is they ask you to dilate. Dilation is basically trying to keep the area open. Um, because your body, your body sees it as a wound. So it's going to try to close it up because in what I was assigned at birth, there's nothing anatomically there. So now there's something there. So the body is trying to figure out what's going on down there. So to keep it open so the body doesn't close up the wound, kind of like when you get earring uh, earring piercings or body piercings, if you don't keep an, um, an earring or some piece of metal or something in there, it'll close up on its own. It's the same principle. The body will do that as well downstairs. So a dilator, which is what you use to dilate, is basically a medical grade dildo. And you periodically throughout the day, put the dilator in your neovaginal cavity. And depending on where you are in the healing, you may have to do it four times a day for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, what have you. And that's to prevent your body from closing it. Now, there are times, even if you do that, your body is going to be like, I don't know what's going on here. I'm going to close it up anyway. So I dilated till the cows came home, but my body closed up the cavity. So what my vaginal cavity looks like right now is half of it has um, created a stricture. So stenosed. I have vaginal stenosis. The first part of my vaginal cavity is open and clear. And then the back part of it in the middle is closed off with scar tissue. Basically, I have to have, they call it in, in the medical world, the vault. I have to have the vault reopened surgically next summer. So I was one of the unfortunate, unlucky girls who have to have a revisional procedure. And it's been very difficult and very hard because um, I think what people don't realize, this is, this is doctors that I have seen. I think what they don't realize is there is discomfort and pain associated with your body closing up. Um, that area, you know, there's extra bloat, there's abdominal issues, there's bowel issues, um, because there's a lot of swelling, intermittent swelling going on in that area. Sometimes it pushes up against your um, colon. Um, and that'll happen even with a healthy vaginoplasty healing, but more so if there's any complications or problems. I'm on painkillers and water pills and stuff to stop bloating and pain and and stuff like that. Um, Because before the doctor can surgically reopen the vaginal cavity, everything has to be healed based on what the body wants to heal before he can re-traumatize that area. That sounds so incredibly painful. And I can't even imagine how painful 
that surgery was without these complications. Recovery has been horrible for me, and I'm just being completely honest. It's been absolute. It's been an absolute nightmare, and not necessarily any fault of uh, the doctor's handiwork, but just my body has just not healed it appropriately. And so there's a lot of pain physically and mentally. You know, stenosis is is pretty common amongst people who have vaginas. um, And it's just going to be a little bit harder for me to fix mine. And I do definitely feel as binary as it sounds, as whiny as it may sound, I do feel less of a woman, you know, because this vaginoplasty was tied into treating my gender dysphoria, you know, your gender dysphoria, which I like to call the nuclear power plant of you being trans or non-binary, you can't ever shut that nuclear power plant off. You know, gender affirming surgeries, hormones just treats the gender dysphoria that is present, but it never can get rid of it completely. Having such a major part, a, a major, a major um, treatment for my gender dysphoria go horribly wrong does something to your head and it makes you feel even less worthy, less of a woman, in my case, horrible, you know? So there's definitely physical, mental, and emotional things associated with these complications I'm having. Yeah. And I think it's so heartbreaking to hear you say that because like you said, this surgery was a hopeful thing that was going to help you with your gender dysphoria. And you know, it didn't. So you're kind of in the same place or even it sounds like worse. For me, it's a little worse because, um, you know, had I healed appropriately, there would have been little to no problem. Um, And I say little to no problem because I can't predict what it would be like without complications because that wasn't my journey. But it definitely would have been a different outlook. I would definitely have a different demeanor and mindset. It's really hard because then, you know, you have some doctors saying, oh, well, you know what? It's perfectly fine. Um, you'll you'll have the revision um, ne- in, in the summer, fall of 2021. And in five years from now, it'll all be good. Your, your vagina will be functional like it's supposed to be and and blah, blah, blah. And but you have a beautiful clitoris and, and externally your vagina looks amazing. And I understand that particular person may have wanted, was trying to make me feel better and there wasn't any malicious intent behind it. But what they have to understand is that this is extremely problematic and it doesn't matter if I get the revision in eight years from now or next summer until it's done, it's going to remain problematic, you know? Um, And you can wish for self-confidence and a self-boost and I love myself till the cows come home all you want to. Your gender dysphoria is in your mind and your soul. It ain't going anywhere and it runs the show. And you have a vagina that is essentially not functional the way your gender dysphoria needs it to be. And so it is going to affect everything. You know, and you being a positive posy as much as I appreciate it, isn't going to change that on this end. So it is a lot to, I don't think people, I think people understand when I talk about it, but they don't really get the depth of how bad this affects me. You know, I have a cisgender husband. You know, there's also that component with it, like the sex life with my own husband, not my boyfriend, not my fiance, but my husband. And, you know, 
telling me it's going to be okay. In five years, I'm going to be laughing on this moment. Or, you know, there's other ways you can have sex. That's not sufficient comfort for me. My intentions may be good, but that's not the reality on how it's going to lay out when you're sitting alone in bed at night. Gender dysphoria is something that as a cis woman, like I can sympathize with, like you said, laying in bed at night, I don't know what you're feeling and what you're going through and what your brain is telling you about your own body. Can be easily identified by society as a trans person and you're a person of color on top of it. Especially when you, and then you throw a woman on top. It's a whole meal with a side of Doritos and a Twinkie. And it's not pretty in a lot of cases because people are ignorant as fuck. And the ones that aren't, you're spending your time teaching them how, how to be, um, better human beings, you know, cause they're ignorant as fuck as well. It's just, they're, they're willing to learn, you know? So either way you're teaching people how to be better or you're repelling those who are ignorant as fuck and want to stay ignorant as fuck. Um, and that, that goes, that intertwines into every aspect of your life. It invades and infiltrates every aspect of your life. When you go to the store, when you go to the doctor, when you go downstairs to get the mail, when you go and get beauty cream, you know, when you go to the laundry room, all of everything I said plays into everyday life and how people perceive you and mostly negative, you know? And so when you're at the doctor, which is a, Sadly, a large um, um, cesspool of transphobia and envyphobia um, because they have to go by what's on your ID. You know, <laughs> if they can see you coming, you're in trouble. If they learn who you are because they can't see, your, see you coming, you're in trouble. And they will treat you differently. And when they see me, who I'm, I'm 300 and something pounds and I'm six foot tall and I'm a trans woman. Most people are not about that. They're, they're just not. That's not acceptable in their culture. That's not acceptable to them in their ethics and morals. That's not acceptable to them in the media. And that's not acceptable to them in society. And they channel that in day-to-day interactions. So it's everywhere that I go. Well, you're acceptable to me. And those people need to get the fuck over themselves and realize what century they're living in. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and again, being so open and just being you. I'm so thankful that the universe saw fit to bring us together. Knowing you has definitely made my life better. And thank you, Nevada, so much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Humans Are Us. Never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to rate and review. Enjoyed this episode? Share it with someone you think would love to connect with our growing community. Do you have a story to be shared? Check out our website and send us an email or connect with us on Instagram at humansareus.com.